welcome to the Alpha Podcast by Canis for Ryan Eford. I'll be hosting professionals that live the Alpha lifestyle from a number of different industries and career fields. You can find us at your favorite podcast apps and sign up on our newsletter for updates. All right. Well, I'd like to welcome our guest today to another Alpha Podcast by Canis. And I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Mr. Rob Gearing, who is the founder of Spartan Precision Equipment. And most of you know it as the Haviland Bipod is... Uh, I think the first product that I've seen. So Rob, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, delighted to be here. Well, tell me about um, you know, your background and how you got into this space. So I originally have, uh, had an aviation company, used to overhaul aircraft engines, then got into buying and selling them. So I always had an engineering base background. Um, my big passion when I was much younger was climbing rock climbing, which then sort of migrated into mountaineering. Um, used to climb with a few buddies all over the world, actually, and that was a lot of fun. But really, I'm very much an outdoorsy person. Never really been in love with office, office work, and I'm not, not very literate, really, so I use my mind in a very different way. So I any excuse to be outdoors, so be it a fly rod, a rifle, a bow in later years, I love the bows. I'm not very good with them, but I really get properly jizzed up by going out with a bow. Or climbing was the excuse to be outdoors. So that was my background. Work, as I say, was, was aviation. I sort of, spending a lot of time climbing, you're always very weight-driven. I'm not a huge guy. I probably weigh oh, in pounds. What would I be in pounds? Maybe 170 pounds. I'm probably a wee bit off there. But I'm really a bit crazy about what I have on my back and what I'm carrying. So everything I was using had to work, right? I've gone through all the mistakes, bad boots, bad gloves, bad clothing, bad ill-fitting packs and things. And um, if I wasn't doing bipods and bits and pieces, I would probably be doing what you're doing, designing clothes, because I've always been passionate about getting gear right. But um, I got into where I am now because I used to take people hunting and I had a Harris bipod on my rifle most of the time but I didn't leave it on there all the time because we used them so infrequently where we hunt locally and I got a Swedish guy into a nice roebuck little Labrador sized deer around here I love hunting it's still my favorite thing to hunt and probably eat they're very very good eating and hunting and I'd taken the bipod off and we couldn't get him a stable platform. We let the row go. And um, I'm going to go off base a little bit here, you probably say. I literally, we bought the test nose of Concorde, right? The Concorde aircraft. Okay. Turned it into a piece of art, put it on a big stainless steel plinth, stuck it on an aircraft engine bearing, um, Olympus engine bearing, the, the engine that powered Concorde, or one of them. And the guy that uh, covered the bearing, he used two clamshells. And to cover the bearing, he used two rare earth magnets. And I couldn't get over how strong these tiny little magnets were. So I said to this guy, who's a design engineer, I said, make me a bipod that goes on my rifle with a magnet. And that was the end of my genius. <laughs> and it was literally a little Heath Robinson affair, cut the metal legs, stick it on when I need it pull it off when I don't. And I used that for quite some time. Basically had an, a bit of an ugly divorce from my old business partner in aviation because we didn't love each other very much anymore. It would have been a great relationship, but these things fall apart, probably sure. guilt on both sides. Um, and set up, yeah, you know what it's like. And set up, I've been with him for 20 odd years and he was a good guy, you know, but anyway, we all change. Um, and I set up Spartan, got in a tiny little boat and started paddling hard. And uh, that was about eight or nine years ago. And we are where we are now. And we're still a small company, but we're a small company passionate about producing good gear. And that a bit like what you're doing, you know, you think, well, there's a hole in the market here. And for me to be able to put a bipod on my rifle, something that all of us probably use very infrequently when we're hunting, Having that on the rifle is not the right place for me. Right. That's my personal view. I'm sure plenty of people can come up with a valid argument against that, but that's how I function. 
And the fact that I can put an adapter on my rifle and I can run a tripod, bipod, quad system, pent system off that same modular system is pretty cool for me. And it, we do a lot of what I would call deer management in the UK. So if I see five deer in front of me, I probably want four of them dead, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's not so much a trophy hunting thing. It's very much getting the meat in the larder, which sure. we sell direct game dealers, and about keeping the farmers happy because they're going, hey, guess what? I just planted all my crops and I've got 130 fallow deer running around there. Absolutely. So I come from a, basically producing modular systems that work very quick in the field and they're hunting tools, eh? They're not really, I wouldn't ever said they were set up for target or range work. They're very much aimed for the hunter market. We have since moved on to other stuff that we do with the military and police. And, you know, like all things, you develop products because you get asked by different different channels um, to produce stuff. So we're, we're getting there. But what you said earlier, the javelin bipod was first and foremost our little baby. That's what we started with. And to this day, we still, that's, that's our, probably our core product. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll speak to that and kind of echo what you said for a minute, because I also, uh, which is a great, uh, I'm glad that I use it. I also had the Harris bipod forever, right? And um, I love shooting off a bipod, but I'm like, I have this super technical gear on my body, right? You've got great optics, you've got a state-of-the-art weapon, and I have this heavy, you know, piece of metal, on the, it just didn't make any sense to me. And and I, I came across you guys through, um, I believe the same way, Joe and Steve. He's like, man, you got to check this out. And uh, when your office sent the, both the uh, the bipod and the tripod over, I mean, I immediately understood. Um, the, the attention to detail, the quality of your product, um, it was very apparent um, that you guys, as you mentioned, you know, you're a small shop and you're doing it, you're doing really good things. And you're, 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 you're not just launching, which I think a lot of, in all categories of the world today, right? People, are, people launch something um, and they say, let's launch it. And if it, if it sells and it works, then we'll, we'll make more. Um, and if it doesn't, we'll just scrap that and go to the next one. And clearly your product uh, is state of the art. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a, a fine tool, if you will. It's, it's developed by shooters. And I think that's, it's developed to fill a need for me. Yeah. And I'm pretty average out there. You know, I'm not the best shot on the planet, but if it works for me, it's going to work for a multitude of other people. I, getting back to people spend a fortune on optics and rifles. And I said, they don't tend to worry about the soft tissue part, okay. right? You can spend spank 10 grand on a rifle and six grand on a scope, but it's not bloody good if you can't stabilize the platform. Right. So that was, and I call them ethical killing tools. And when you're doing as much shooting as we do, and not so much anymore, but we'd be, we'd be shooting 320 deer a year between eight of us, wow. just managing this small area. So you're getting numbers. So you, you get an app, you very quickly get an appetite of what works and what doesn't because you're doing so much game management. And for me, it's all about weight. It's all about, I wouldn't use a tripod round here, right? I would use two legs even when standing. So our system is modular. We, I would say we sell a tripod, but it's not really a tripod. It's a shooting system. Right. And you, when you're mountain hunting, as you say, you go to Alaska and such like, and you need a tripod, carrying a tripod is a heavy bit of gear to carry on your back. So why don't you unscrew the bloody legs, guys, and let's turn it into trekking poles <laughs> and make our tripod when we need it. And guess what? When we're carrying our meat off, let's build the trekking poles up. You know, it just, it's, it's, there's nothing clever in what we do because it's simple. And I like simple, functional tools that work. So I go to aviation-grade machine shops. I mean, I really am anal about the quality of the, you know, we use aviation grade alloys. We use really good carbon fiber. Um, and we just like to make things right because if something's going to fail and they invariably it does when you're pushing things to the limits and even our stuff will fail in time, you know, we're not miracle workers, but I don't want it out. I don't want my products letting you down when you spend a lot of money to get on the top of a mountain. 
Absolutely. Warranty is not too good for you up there. You're not going to get back in your car and go, can I change this, please? So I'd rather put the money into the product as opposed to the warranty, if that makes sense. 100%. Yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're that far, all the training, right, all the money, all the travel, all the, the sacrifices you make to get in position, you want, it needs to work when you're there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And even, even with our trekking poles, which are the legs to our tripod, if you did happen to break a carbon leg, you can put the remaining part in and lock it off so you still have a functional trekking pole. Well, I've grown up using trekking poles. And when you break an aluminium trekking pole, you know, you've just got a redundant bit of material that you've got to carry back off the hill again that's absolutely useless. Sure. And going back to what you said about Harris, I think Harris bipods, they're excellent tools. And, they, and what that guy did with bipods, with the materials he had at that time, were, he was absolutely out there. He was smashing it. I think things have just moved on and we're just looking at more simple systems. You know, he didn't have rare earth magnets to play with. He only had metal. Shooting off carbon fibre is far, far better than shooting off metal legs just because of the way it manages a recoil. And that was a happy accident for us. I can't say, oh, we'll put carbon fiber on our legs and make it, we did it for weight really. But if it, if you slow-mo video shooting off carbon as opposed to shooting off metal, you really get to understand what I'm saying. Yeah, it's just like, um, I mean, I used to do a lot of triathlons and, and riding a carbon fiber bike frame versus I, I ended up, uh, I tried at one point the, I went from aluminum to carbon and then I went to the, the titanium, you know, the light speed product. Yeah. Um, the light speed was fast, but it just, it wasn't as smooth of ride as, the, as, yeah. the, um, and obviously that's, it, that applies to the shooting as well and how it takes the energy. And even carbon fiber stocks, a well-designed carbon fiber stock, really absorbs a lot of energy from the, from the rifle shot as well. So there's a lot you can do with that material. It's a pretty amazing uh, product, really, if it's put together right. So tell me, so, I mean, you're born, um, you're born in the UK. Um, obviously, you live in the UK now. Did you grow up hunting, or how did you get into hunting? No, we have a very different flavor over here. And I talk about this, a very good question, because you don't get into hunting easily in the UK. It's a bit of an elitist game over here. You're, you're getting really with three channels. You'll either be born filthy wealthy, landowner, and then hunting's easy, or you'll grow up and you'll go to college and become a professional gamekeeper or deer stalker. So there are colleges you can go to learn to become a hunter kind of thing. No kidding. Uh, huh. Yeah, no, no, seriously. I mean, there's 70 odd million people who live in the UK. I think at last count, there's about 155,000 firearms users. Wow. So it's licensed. So yep. nobody's got rifles over here compared to the populace. Um, and the other thing is you could be lucky like me and know people that have got land, know they need deer help with deer management and fall in it to it in that way. But I grow up, grew up shooting air rifles and hunting pigeons and rabbits right. out in the woods. Um, but I think what you've got in America, as much as I'm sure it's not perfect, it's not ideal, and people probably will critique it, to have that public land in the States is a huge, uh, I mean, that's fantastic. It's a real, um, it's a fantastic thing that anybody can go and get a tag. I know there's challenges with that now. And you've got that public land to go and hunt on. I mean, in the UK, we have nothing like that, I promise you. And it's, it's, it's pretty challenging. It's also pretty challenging because it creates, if you can't do it, if you can't go and hunt and play, it's easy to dislike something, isn't it? Sure. So it's very easy for people to not understand hunting not and think, well, I don't want to do that because they've never had a chance to do it. So we've got some challenges over here, and it's, it's not very pretty at the moment. I think people are working hard to try and sell the virtues of what hunting is all about, but we haven't done a brilliant job at it. Yeah. Too many people have seen dead elephants with large people in front of them and actually seen... An hour and a half later, the elephant being butchered up and given to the locals as meat. And we need to show the whole story, but too much of one part of the story is being told. And uh, I'm quite, that upsets me. I'd like, I'd like a little bit of honesty out there, but uh, I'm sure we all feel the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, that makes sense. I mean, if it's, 
as you say, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? If you don't have the public land, and then you're gonna you're gonna find something else to do. And so here, you know, it's interesting that you know you grew up in the UK and I grew up in, in the US and Arkansas, and we both grew up hunting hunting birds with with air guns and pellet rifles. Um, yeah, that's that that's yeah. what I enjoy doing, and it, and it is good to see it. I still see it today. You know, kids wanting to get out and shoot here, um, and I think it's it's obviously the um, the right to own a firearm here um, yeah. and yeah. then access to hunting, you know? And so, yeah, I'd say like certain areas, if you, if you're a non-resident of a certain state, right. Then it's sure. Some tags for usually they're really incredible areas are harder to get a tag. But I mean, if even being from Arkansas, if I want to go hunt elk, archery elk in Colorado, I can drive out to Colorado and buy an over the counter tag. And, and if I'm successful, have some of the best eating meat in the world. And drive home. I had a, I had a brilliant, I, a, a lovely story. I, I flew into the States to do exactly what you just said. Um, and I got the, uh, when I came, I showed the passport guy my passport, and he said, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm coming to hunt elk. And I'm going to spend a few hundred dollars to do it. And he shook my hand. He said, good on you. That would never happen in the UK. If you came and said, I'm going to go and do some hunt, they would look at you like non-plus. And I thought, no, good on you. There is, I think there's so much good that we can learn from being outdoors. I think it's a real great thing to get the youngies into it. I really love the fact that there's more and more women out there hunting. I think supermarkets, I don't know if you call them supermarkets over there, but big places at food stores um, are pretty guilty of um, us losing touch with where our food comes from. Right. You know, everything's in a little plastic bag these days. I'm guilty of it. I'll pick up some chicken or some beef, and I don't even think about that as a living thing. You know, as a kid, I could knock on the next-door neighbour and give them some rabbits, and they'd be delighted. If I knocked on my next-door neighbour now and said, you want some rabbits, they'd probably go, phone the police. <laughs> and that's how quickly things have changed. Yeah. And I find that deeply upsetting because... As a child, some of my best memories are out in the woods, you know, with my little air gun doing my stuff. And look, I'm sure computer games are great, but I'm sure it doesn't leave the same imprint. It doesn't imprint you the same way as hunting does. And we've been doing it since we've been on the planet. So why are there so many people now that are saying this isn't right? We, Unfortunately, if we want to live, something's got to die. And I mean that by plants and animals and when you start getting all twisted about this i think come on guys let's just get back down to some reality absolutely you know it's funny you mentioned it i was i was boarding a, it's, it's been uh probably four years ago i was boarding a flight at heathrow headed down to cape town on a business trip and yeah. Africa, and uh, it was a, a british guy <clears throat> sitting beside me and I, he was uh you guys call it biscuits we call it cookies he was a biscuit salesman and going down to see some accounts. And we had, it was actually, you know, over, over beers on that flight, it was about a four or five hour uh, discussion. And, and, it, and that's the positive, right? It was actually a discussion. Two people yeah. had very different views and opinions um, had a discussion without trying to kill each other or, or scream and yell, you know, at, at one point the flight attendant was laughing. She said, I think you guys are never going to agree. And I said, that's okay. Cause at least we're, we're discussing, right? We're, yeah. He's a demo. Oh, yeah, sorry. he didn't understand. Um, he said, I don't think um, you Americans need guns. I don't think uh, you need to kill things for food. And, and so that was obviously, you know, his, his um, platform that uh, he wanted answers. And, and so um, we discussed it for four or five hours. And I think by the end of it, um, he at least saw the other side and, and, and I think had a better understanding um, yeah. And, you know, not to get into um, the Ukraine situation right now, but you've got a populace that, that's now being armed, you know, and, and here yeah. in the States, if you look at the population, um, you know, most, I would say a, a large portion of the country, um, you know, from, from children being in the woods, learning how to shoot with air guns and then graduating on to hunting rifles. Um, to whatever firearm they end up shooting, the, the, the population owns guns and they know how to use them. And yeah, and that's a very strong deterrent. 
I'm I'm completely with you on that. And I think, um, I mean, we are probably in one of the most controlled countries in the world now when it comes to firearms. Obviously, China doesn't have firearms and other countries don't, but in the UK, it's very, very difficult to get firearms. Um, the problem, so they banned pistols, I think, back in the 80s. I used to have pistols over here. Now it would be far easier for me to buy a pistol than it would have been when they were legal. Right, I could, I could literally go to London now or the East End and I could pick up a pistol so easily. So these rules and regulations that are imposed on us fix nothing. And actually, if you look at licensed firearms users killing people, I'm sure it happens, but it's not the common problem, right? Most people are killed with an illegal firearm or whatever. So what? it's just... It does frighten me, actually, what's going on at the moment and how, I don't want to go off on one on this, but with COVID, how certain rules and regulations have been imposed, right? right? And now it's very difficult to get them removed again. I mean, I've just flown back from Germany and COVID is not an issue in the UK anymore, right? We don't wear masks. We're not doing anything. Yes, if you go into a hospital, you still have to wear masks. But other than that, we're all legit. We can go wherever we like. Great, because I cannot be asked to wear any of those masks ever again. But um, <laughs> but basically, where am I going with that? The, the thing is, we now have a locator form to fill in on a flight so they know where you're going. Okay. Well, the COVID restrictions have been restricted, but the, but the locator form has not been. And I said to my PA the other day, why do we have to fill in this locator for? Because I'm, I don't have to do any checks when I come back. So things like that, I think they alarm me. And getting back to your honest debate with the guy that didn't agree with the hunting, I think it's great we can have these conversations with people without falling out. Right. You know, it's great to be able to discuss things with people with very different alternative views, right? right. And everybody's got a point of but it's almost like people are scared of arguing now or it goes straight to the angry argument. Right. And I'm, I slightly worry about that and the way things are sort of moving. It might be an age thing. I'm 58 years old and maybe I've just turned into an old man overnight. But I just, I do, con I, I like having honest debates with people, particularly vegetarians, vegans, and I'm not going to fall out with anybody over it. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I've talked to people who uh, I've asked, hey, you seem like you might be into hunting. Um, well, you know, my, my mother, my, my wife's not okay with it. And I'm like, yeah, but, but you're a fisherman. That's right. Well, do you eat the fish? Oh yeah. We'd love to eat the fish. Okay. So if we, if we shoot a deer or we shoot an elk and you eat the meat, how is that different than, than catching a fish and eating the fish? Well, the fish is a fish. It's not like a living thing that's walking around. And, and, and so, you know, that probably doesn't really need to be explained. I mean, that, that goes back to one's, one's own opinion within a realm of, uh, of, of how they, how they are going to define what hunting is. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and I would challenge those same people. It's like, okay, do you eat chicken and beef? Oh, of course, but I don't want to kill it. And it's like, well, have, if you've ever been into a factory, which I have, and you see, um, you know, the cattle or the chickens, you, I think one would, one would definitely uh, decide if they saw that, that the ethical taking of game, whether it be with a firearm, a rifle or what have you, and, and learning to process that yourself, because uh, that's also very empowering, right? To, to, to basically take an animal and, and clean it yourself and then provide that to, to yourself, your family, a village in the case of hunting around the world. And that's awesome. Well, that's that's why we're here, isn't right. it? That's, uh, like, that's a big. And I, I say, I, I don't like the word sport when uh, when you're killing things. I, for me, I say it's not sport. Sport for me is playing tennis or kicking a ball or climbing. Sure. If I'm taking a life, that's uh, that's something far more deep for me. Um, and it's a passion. It's it's I'm absolutely passionate about being outside. I've almost passed the stage where I need to shoot anything. This yep. sounds a bit silly, but I, I, I went elk hunting, the Colorado. I paid my elk license. I didn't see an elk. Well, I saw a few dead ones on the road and bits and pieces, but 
did I did it ruin my journey? No, it didn't. It was an excuse to be out. I had a, the most fantastic two weeks with Ian Harrison from Recoil Magazine. We had a lovely time. I was in a beautiful area. I got up every day. I glassed. I went walking, hunting, blah, blah, blah. Saw plenty of things. I had an epic time. Yep. Right? It didn't ruin the journey. It was the excuse to be out. Um, my partner, getting back to what you said about the chicken and beef farms and bits and pieces, she was quite anti-hunting. I've been with her for over 13 years now. And um, she's French and she's now got to stay. She said, well, I... She's not a big meat eater. She's sort of a meat eater now and again. But she said, I almost feel a hypocrite now buying the meat from the supermarket if I'm not prepared to hunt it. So, and I think that's a really nice, you know, I, that's a tangible thing for me. The fact that she she's actually thinks I'm, I'm eating this meat from a farm, but maybe I should be hunting the meat and completing the journey. I spent a lot of time with Inuit people. I spent a lot of time up in the Arctic and indigenous people. I was fascinated. They fascinate me, you know, particularly the hunters because they've been living it and breathing it. Sure. And, and sometimes they don't tend to say a lot, but what they do say makes a lot of sense. And one of these Inuit guys I was with once, he said, so I get a hard time from somebody eating a McDonald's, right, giving me shit for right. what I'm doing. Right. right, and yet they're eating a burger or KFC. Have they been to the farms? Right, right? we've been doing this for eight thousand years plus. That's right. The animals are still here. I think it's much more wholesome, and I'd like to think on a positive note. I think things are slowly turning back now, in a good way. I think more and more mums are going. Do you know what? I don't want to eat some piece of crappy meat that's right. eating the wrong food, injected with hormones. Right, tastes like shite. I want to go out and do the whole journey. And that is really wholesome. And I think that's growing. Um, certainly in Scandinavia is, I'm speaking to a lot of people in the States where the mums are getting into hunting. I think that's fantastic. Absolutely. You can get the mums and the kids on board. And what a story. You go out for a few days with your whole family, you harvest an elk, whitetail, mule deer, whatever, beaver, whatever, and you take that back a turkey and you cook that and you do the whole process together, that's about being alive, isn't it? You talk about fly fishing. The guys that give me the biggest shit about killing a trout are fly fishermen that do all the catch and release. Absolutely. And I said, hang on, mate. So yeah. what you're saying is I can go and catch a fish, play it for 10 minutes or whatever, right, release it, That's what, but I can't kill one to eat it. Right. You're still putting that fish through a bit of pressure, aren't you? Absolutely. So I don't need to kill every fish that I catch, but I'm certainly not going to not kill a fish now and again if I want to eat one or if right. I called it the gills or whatever. You know, that's a good bit of protein there. And it sort of defies the whole thing of fly fishing for me if I can't cook a fish on the riverbank now and again. Right. So as you say, we've all got different levels, but if we can have these adult conversations and share our views, it's pretty healthy. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, my, my oldest son is, is 14. He started hunting at a young age. All my children have been out there in the field with me hunting. And, um, last year, um, he, he's really gotten into fishing, uh, fly fishing and, and bait casting. Um, and that led to one night that, that I called him and I said, Hey, when are you guys coming home? They're out in the, in the Can-Am, you know, cruising yeah. around and, uh, they said, oh, we're catching, catching bullfrogs. And I said, you're catching bullfrogs? He said, yeah, we're catching bullfrogs. We're going to bring them home. Will you cook them? I said, sure, but, you know, you got to clean them. And so they, they brought home the, the bullfrogs and, and cleaned them. And uh, I, I helped them a little bit on, on showing them where to cut it. But I cooked them up for them. And I thought, man, like, that's so cool. And I'm obviously not going to be around, right, forever. And, and as a father, and, and you, you look back and, and it's like, you have complete confidence that they know how to take care of themselves and they understand. Uh, and he, and the question was also like, not if we can't cook them tonight, we're going to throw the frogs back. Right. Because it's, yeah. but if you yeah. can't cook them for us tonight, we're yeah. going to bring them home. And so it's yeah. man, like the, that's so cool to see that they get it. 
Funny, I, I actually, I haven't had frog's legs for years, but I had them yesterday for lunch. You're kidding? No, no, I literally, <laughs> restaurant in Tunbridge Wells, I was at my missus, and the frog, my God, I try those again, it's, and they're fantastic. I mean, I'm, yeah. I love them, they really are good. But, uh, yeah, good on your son for doing that. And I, I just think, wonderful. And they'll, they remember those things forever. And I just, we've got a lot of problems in the UK with certain, like the, British Broadcasting Corporation, which is a public entity paid for by us as taxpayers. And they're almost hell-bent on destroying all of these old ways. Um, Not even because they necessarily hate it, because they don't understand it. And I think, and there's a lot of things now that are science-based and they still, we now, I, I believe now we can't bring trophies back in from Africa and such like. It's not a big issue for me. I'm not, I mean, I love hunting in Africa, but the trophy is a memory for me, right? You know, but I can get it why people want to bring it back and why shouldn't they be able to bring it back? I mean, South Africa has done a wonderful job at bringing a lot of game back, a lot of game that wouldn't be living there if it wasn't introduced and bred and supported. Um, They basically turned a lot of beef farms back into wildlife farms. And I often have the conversation, well, would I rather be a dairy cow or a, a meat cow or would I rather be an Eland right. living a good old life? And, yeah, one day probably I'm going to get knocked over. But, hey, nature's not too sweet out there, is it? If people actually look at how things get finished off, I think if you can live a very good wild life as an Eland or a kudu or whatever and then you get shot and everybody's doing all right and the meat's got used, Absolutely great. Bring it on. What have we got to hide? You know, the ram I shot, uh, I shot a doll sheep in Alaska. um, It was two years ago. But, you know, you look at that ram's life. He's 12 and a half years old. He's lived his entire life in the Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in the Brooks Range, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. when When we skinned him out, he had less than an inch of fat on his body. So he was going to sit up there and basically die. Yes, hard to death in the winter time, yeah. and uh, the bullet took him out. It fed us. It actually, it literally fed us because you know a bear ended up eating all of our food. Two days back to camp, um, my God got to keep the rest of the food. Money came into Alaska. I mean, it's 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 a great it's a great circle, right? That that I, I know where I'd rather go. Right? If somebody sat me on top of a mountain, starve out as an old man, or somebody just took me out nice and quick, I'll go for the nice and quick every day. <laughs> and you're, you're in, you know, that's the good thing about hunting as well. You have that option to select and be quite picky and choosy on what you're doing. And we did the same in Tajikistan. And the chap I with, Gary Rabba, he shot um, Marco Polo. And the thing was knackered, you know, that yep. would not have done another year. Yep. Right. So we all, we got the meat. We enjoyed the meat. Everything's all happy. There was a lot of money that came into that country for that, supported a lot of families, you know, and give it another year, that ram would have been dead anyway. So it's good. Don't they taste good as well? Well, I, I, I want to I dovetail that into or segue into I was going to ask, I, I'm going to ask you some questions about um, your hunting experience around the world, but I think here's another misconception that I see. So when I was a child and I was hunting, every drainage or draw or ridgeline or field was a new adventure, right? Like I would see a hillside and maybe, maybe the sun's going down and it's like, man, I want to come back. It's almost like over that next ridge is another magical kingdom of, of the wilderness that I've never seen. I mean, what if there's more deer over there? What if there's a stream, right? That has fishing. In it? And so it's, it goes back to our, our God given uh, DNA to explore, right? The world. I mean, guys have been doing it since the beginning of time, right? I mean, it's a, and so um, duck hunting is the same way. Like, I mean, I wonder what's in the next slough. I wonder what's down the river. Right. And so when you, I think we're, people that haven't done it, my passion, like go, I see people say, Oh, you're going to go hunt in Tajikistan. Oh, you're a trophy hunter, right? Are you going to go to Africa? You're a trophy hunter. And it's like, no, it's no different than hunting like me in Arkansas or you in the UK exploring new, new areas. Right. It's, it's almost magical to like, I remember as a child, like 
hey, dad, can I go a little bit further this way by myself today? Sure. I mean, it, it's empowering. I'm completely and utterly with you. And I've never lost that. I mean, I was in Colorado a few weeks back and I went up to a few mountain mountains. And you just, I actually tried to get to the top of a, 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 a you know, a mountain that was covered in snow. And I was staying at Brandy Rock Canyon and it was very deep. And I actually thought, mm, this is getting a bit dodgy now because it's sort of <laughs> avalanchey and a bit flaky and such like. And I thought, and I always set myself personal goals to get to a place at a certain time. Right. And if I'm not there, I invariably break them. I break my own rules every time, but I sort of have a safety net and I came off. But it's the adventure. If you actually put the shooting of the animal down on a percentage, about your adventure, it's probably less than 5% of the adventure. The adventure is discovering those new drainages, the new valleys, the new rivers, the new systems, new ground, I, I, and, and the people you're with. You know, all of those culminate to a fantastic memory bank. And when you're sitting there on your deathbed thinking, well, yeah, I packed it in. You know, I really consider myself very, very lucky because I've I've hunted and climbed and fished all over the world, but I still get childlike excitement about picking up the rod and finding a new river, just as you've said, or going into a new drainage, a uh, new area. That's super exciting because it's, it's what it's all about, right? I can't press, I can't get that kind of level of excitement living at home in a house, you know, if that makes sense. I have to go and recalibrate myself. And people, when I climb fairly, fairly seriously, people used to say, well, why do you do it? And I said, because it makes me appreciate what I've got. And when you come back and you can switch the kettle on or make a cup of tea or coffee easy, right, it, you appreciate it Absolutely. for a week or two. And then you have to go away again. But it's just, and that's the way we're wired. I think that's just in our DNA. And I think so many people have lost touch with the adventure of life, right? Because it's all too easy on the mobile phones now and the computers and they can sort of live through a screen. And I'm guilty of it. You know, it's there. I'm guilty of, oh my, I need to check this out. And I now hunt places and say, is there any internet here? And I go, no, great, count me in. Or even if there is internet, I don't try and find it. I've got GPS so people can know I'm still alive and such like. But it's really nice to get away from that, isn't it? Absolutely. It's really nice to get into an area where you're not, you properly switch off. I say it to my kids, I say, I'm so upset for you that you didn't grow up pre-phones. Right. Phones are great. I love my phone. I would be the first person to be crying in my suit if I didn't have my phone with me. But the fact, pre-phones, you can switch off. You don't have to worry about because people can't get hold of you. And it's the only time you can properly and utterly switch off. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember when I was, I was telling that to my kids the other day, you know, when I was a boy, I said I would, you know, I'd eat breakfast, of course, and I'd, I'd head out on my bike in the summertime when school was out with a, with a fishing rod. And you'd show back up at, at dinner time, and nobody asked where you were or was really concerned. They just knew that you were out in the woods and you were going to be, when you get hungry, you'll come home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And people did that. And now they look at you as if you're mad, stir crazy. If you, where's your kid gone kind of thing. And it's, I, I mean, I, I, when I was in aviation after September the 11th, after the terrible things that happened in America, I said to my missus, I said, look, we can, aviation's going to fall off a cliff now. You know, nobody's going to want to fly for a wee while. So we either adjust our lifestyle majorly or we go somewhere where the pound goes a bit further. And she said, I like option B better. So we, <laughs> we, we, we hopped off to Patagonia, right? One bag each. At the time, it was a very scary thing to do because we had three little kids, you know, what was going to happen, blah, blah. Best thing we ever did, yep. you know. Dropping yourself into an uncomfortable environment, oh. it really, you find yourself. You know, That's I think you, and as, much, as much as people go, oh, I'm not really comfortable, they remember it very differently, right? They don't necessarily remember the freezing cold nights or the incredible thirst, you know, or whatever. They just remember that adventure and say, do you know what? That was an epic journey. Right. So you have to sort of get a little bit scarred and damaged, I think, to really appreciate things, if that makes sense. 
Absolutely. You know, it's, um, I was, I've coached a youth baseball team and I had three boys that are all, they're all uh, eight, nine years old. They're riding home with me the other day after practice. And they, they found out they, they're, they were super excited. They discovered the Canis YouTube channel, right? And they're like, coach, you're on the, on the, on the channel hunting, you know, and I watched your films. And so they, they said, coach, what's your favorite, what's your favorite hunt? And I said, that's a great question, guys. You know, and as I, I hadn't thought about that. And, and as I tried to basically uh, talk out loud, I said, you know, I could tell you so many great things about every hunt that I've done and fortunate enough to do around the world. I said, but the ones that you really remember, I said, and I, there's several of them, but that you're probably what I would say are ultimately your best are the hardest ones. And they were like, what yeah. are you? I said, the ones that are so hard, you have to grind, you're uncomfortable, right? You're, yeah. you're I mean, it's just it, at the moment you think, what the hell am I doing here? Um, I, I do this for, for fun. Right. And then you, you, you do it. And, uh, it's always that on the, on the way home, you're like, Oh, thank goodness. I've, I've I'm going back to civilization. And then like a week later, you're like, God, I gotta go do that again. Right. It's, yeah. it's like, it's almost, you, you said it best it, that it's that recalibration, that healthy recalibration of the brain. And it's almost like coming up out of ice cold water and just taking that first breath. And it's like, thank God I did that. My, my yeah. soul needed that. Yeah. It, it, you talk about the ice. I mean, we, we did a trip to Greenland just before Christmas and it was, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. It wasn't the most challenging hunting because the caribou don't see anybody or see very few people. So they're not, they're not demanding animal to hunt it would have been an epic thing to do with a bow i have to say but the whole trip was just epic but the guy we we're on a boat so you know we went 80 kilometers let's say it was probably 60 miles in a fjord up a fjord ended up hunting this region we didn't know where we were going again every every drainage was a new adventure um but it was just it was a brilliant brilliant trip um, and again, wasn't really the hunting wasn't challenging, but if I look back on it, there were so many things that happened on that journey. There was old Norway ruins there. There was still grain that those guys had planted 900 years ago that was still growing through. That's not named. And you think somebody was living here 900 years, you know, yep. and all those things culminate in making a fantastic adventure and a fantastic memory. You do well to starve in Greenland that time of year, because you'd literally dip a rod in and you'd pull something out. There was a lot of bird life. There was everything to hunt and fish, but a fantastic, fantastic adventure. Yeah. You know, that's so cool to hear. Like, I mean, it's, and it brings a smile on my face to hear you say it because it's, it, it is true. It's making yourself uncomfortable is where growth happens. Right. Yeah. And, and, that, and that can be applied across all spectrums. I mean, I know for me personally, um, I don't have a psychology degree, right. Or a counseling degree. I kind of listen to my gut and my brain. And yeah. like uh, a few years ago, I started uh, ice skating when my son did and joined the men's hockey league. And someone said, did you grow up playing hockey? I said, no. And they're like, why do you want to do that? And I said, because I don't know how to do it. Uh, you yeah. know, I grew up in the Southern U S so we, we play football, baseball, golf, basketball, the, the Southern sports, if you will. But I was so uncomfortable and I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I had to work at it. Right. Yeah. Didn't even know the yeah. rules. Um, yeah. But there was so much growth for me personally, like healthy growth. Uh, and a friend of mine invited me to a, a Krav Maga class, you know, and I'd never done that before and, and did that. Yeah. And, and again, growth, it was just so, it was so good and healthy. Um, and, and I think that applies just like your family did. Right. It's, it's a little bit scary, but, and then you find that like, you want to continue to put yourself in uncomfortable situations because that's where you grow. That's the drug. That's the drug. It's, it's just testing yourself constantly. And certainly for me in the early days with climbing and things, it's finding that happy medium between scaring yourself and testing yourself to absolute abstract shitting yourself because you think you're going to die. And I'm not somebody that wants to die. So you, you find those happy me and working with small little crews, just as you would with climbing, with hunting and climbing. I like that, that community you build with because invariably you tend to be with people that you picked closely and you've all got your weaknesses and all you've all got your strengths but everything's amplified 
yeah. when you're out there and you're facing a bit of stress. We had um we had a trip uh, in Scotland in December. And Scotland is not a bad environment, but it it doesn't get stupidly cold, but it does get really windy and very wet. And uh, we were on the top of a mountain, and two guys were killed on that mountain three years ago. We go there, we stay on the top of that mountain every year. But the weather was, the conditions were atrocious, right? But we still managed to cook our dinners. We all got in our little tents at night. You know, you think, is that tent going to hold up? And but. And it was a horrible evening. It was a yeah. horrible event, a horrible night. There wasn't anything nice, but we all loved it. We yeah. all loved it. And we got out in the morning, we said, well, that was pretty epic. And yeah. it's just, so we obviously, there must be something in us where we've sort of almost designed to like a little bit of torture. Sure. Just to appreciate the comfort. I like sleeping in a nice bed, just like the next person. But then again, I like to rough it. And when I travel in states, which I do free, you know, I try and get myself a little pickup now. And I'll often sleep down by the river, always bring a sleeping bag and such like, cook up a bit of food and things. I just love that. And that's not testing or anything. I might only be like half a mile from the car, but it's still a little mini adventure and you're doing all these things. Um, I think it goes I really back to, um, I think it goes back to the hard work, right, in our DNA. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah. You obviously have to work, right? And so, if you're those environments, you have to work harder mentally. Um, yeah. In those environments, and um, that pushes your brain beyond what you probably thought was possible. Um, yeah. And once you break through that barrier, it's it's like uh, we had some guys. Um, we, I think we had posted uh, a workout, and there was a couple guys having a go at it because one guy said, "You don't need to do that workout." Uh, to go on a mountain hunt, right? That's too extreme. That's too whatever. What I've found with, with workouts is that do whatever you want to do to make yourself uncomfortable, right? Without hurting yourself. Because when you, when you are hunting um, or you're, or let's just say you go on a hike and you get lost in a backcountry, right? I mean, you have to yeah. be really tough. And when you're in the Scottish Highlands and you're dealing with the, the rain and the wind um, and it's uncomfortable, if you've mentally trained yourself in, in, in exercising and putting yourself in a, in an uncomfortable situation, change your brain for that. And I don't think you can ever be too fit. Can you? Absolutely. No, you know, I'm 58 years old. I'd love to be, I'd love to say I was 25 or 35, yeah. right? I think your resilience as you get older gets a little bit, you just cope with pain maybe a little bit better. But I mean, to go back to, th I'm not the person I was when I was 35 years old or even 45, I'm 58. I'm lucky in the fact that I can still push things quite hard. I have to be much more careful about my knees and hips, clearly. Sure. Um, but it's not going to stop me going out and playing, you know. And the thing is, I might take a little bit longer to do what I did years ago, but I want to be out there. I want to be doing those things. But it gets back to like your clothing and the gear we make you don't want to unnecessarily suffer. If I can stay dry or comfortable, I want to stay dry and comfortable. I want to have the best boots that I can possibly afford. I want the best gloves. I want the best clothing and I want the best gear. And I want it as light as I possibly can have it. Because going out, and I've done it in younger years when I couldn't afford the proper gear, going out and spending the day on the on the side of a rock face and getting soaking wet and blown blown all over the place yeah. and just being cut that's pretty miserable i still look back in it now and smile but i wasn't smiling at the time yeah, yeah. But with the right stuff things can you can really cope with some pretty unpleasant environments and it almost puts a smile on your face you think you're beating the system for a period of time we never beat the system forever but Absolutely. Tell me, um, I've never hunted in Scotland, but I, I had some guys mentioned last year. Um, we talked, so what can you hunt there in a, in basically a, a tented hunt? You've got you roe deer. Yeah. Yeah. You've got roe deer. You've got fallow deer in certain parts. You've got a lot of red deer. Um, you've got hair on that. Um, and then obviously grouse and pheasants, there's a whole host of things you can hunt in Scotland. Sadly, um, with their government in place at the moment, I think they're really trying to close that down. And I can see a lot of changes in the next 10 years, um, which is 
really worrying because I've had some mighty fine time up there. And there's a lot of people that need that for their, for their income. Right. You know, if you're outside of Glasgow or Edinburgh, it really isn't a lot going on other than <clears throat> wildlife. So um, it's, it's a sensitive area for me. But it's, yeah, I, it's, it's a very different type of flavour from what you would get in the States because you're depending on where you go, but you might find it quite old school. You know, they'll do things in a fairly traditional way. Right. Um, I mean, I, I, I've been really lucky to hunt in all sorts of places, but I love going to Scotland for fishing and a bit of hunting. But I like the row hunting over, you know, roebuck. I mean, the small deer, I really like it because it's a very manageable animal. Right. You know, once you have shot it, it's not difficult to process. Right. Um, you can carry one out on your own. It's not like when you're shooting an elk. I did one of those. Well, I took a lady out in Colorado. And, God, that was an education. Sort of five journeys later, <laughs> it's a lot of work. She did an excellent job. I had to say she made an excellent shot and uh, did a really wonderful job. And, it, yeah, it died how I like to see things die. Yeah, once you shoot the elk, it's like he comes back to haunt you too, right? He's going to make you work to get him out of there. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. And it was a challenging day because... We'd seen these elk first thing in the morning and then they bedded down and disappeared. And literally the time they went off, this fella popped out again and uh, got it right on last knockings. So it was last light. And anyway, all worked wonderfully well. But yeah, that went into the evening for sure. What, what does roe deer taste like? Is it, it's good. Roe deer is quite a subtle taste. I mean, we've got six species of deer in the UK. I'd say the best by a country mile my personal fit is Sitka, yeah. Um, uh, Sika deer, sorry. Um, they're really, really tasty. We've got Japanese and Manchurian, then we get Munchak, another Asian import. Um, we've got Chinese water deer, again, another import. And native species are roe deer, uh, fallow deer, and red. Now, arguably, fallow deer aren't native because they were either bought over by the Romans or the Normans as a food source. Nobody really knows, but they weren't native back then, but they've been here so long they're considered native. Um, but I think Red and Roe have been here for a very long time indeed, and uh, they're all good eating. I'm yet to have wild game that isn't good. You know, it can be prepared badly. It can be hung for a long time, but, I mean, I'll eat absolutely anything. And I'm, if you gave me a choice, do you want to eat beef or elk or eland or kudu or whatever, I'm going to go for the wild game every single for sure. day of the week. Yeah. The mud jack, I didn't realize you guys had mud jack. So they live in the, I saw, but well, we, we looked for those. Um, we saw, I think we saw one at a, at a very long, long distance in Nepal. Um, yeah, yeah. That, so it's an Asian deer. We've got a lot of them. Um, bit of a problem around here. I mean, I used to shoot them as pests. Really good eating. Yep. Fantastic food. Um, but now the continentals like to come over and hunt them. They uh, they keep you on your toes because unlike most other deer, they just don't stop. They're just constantly on the on the hoof. The other thing is they don't have a season. You know, within three days of giving birth, the females are normally pregnant again. Um, they're a bit of, yeah, they're a bit of an ecological disaster for the UK because they like uh, likes eating some of our rare flowers and fungi and such like. So they cause yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow. They don't spread as well. I mean, muntjac that I've grown up knowing, they're in a certain area. They're still in that area. They don't tend to spread as much as people tend to believe. I think they might get populated elsewhere okay. in other ways. I don't know. But we do have pigs here as well, but they're very pocketed at the moment, but they're spreading. Okay. Do you have any uh, hunts planned this year? Yeah, I've got... Um, I've got a few things going on. I've got um, a hunt in Idaho in a very remote area. I'm not sure where, but we get flown in and we're boating out and we're going to be in there for about a week or so, which I'm really looking forward to. The Hell's Canyon. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. But it's it's some friends that are putting it together and do you know what? I'm just going along for the ride. Okay. But uh, good. So you. we've got that. I had a really good year last year because I started off, although we had COVID, I still managed to escape. You know, so I got to um, I got to Tajikistan at the beginning of the year, yep. um, which was really wonderful, fantastic trip right on the Afghan border. So 
Um, that was that was we were hunting Marco Polo and Ibex. I didn't hunt Marco Polo. I can't afford that. That's out my price bracket. But the Ibex um, really enjoyed that. And I've hunted in Kyrgyzstan before, and they're very different flavour between Tajik and Kyrgyzstan, actually. So it was really nice to try that. Um, and then we ended up in Greenland, and I spent a lot of time up in Scotland. I really love hunting here as well in Hampshire. Even the next county is over because you can hunt roe deer there okay. in the in in the springtime, and it's it's just a beautiful little species, and it tends to be quite a solo animal. And you can go out for an evening in a pair of shorts, you know, and just if you see something great, if you get into it. But do you know what? I've had brilliant evenings stalking roe deer, not seen an animal, but still had a wonderful evening. So, uh, yeah, and tend to run into some bits and pieces on the way, barn owls or things going on. I had a hunt in Buffalo, New York um, last year as well. In Buffalo, New York? Yeah. Which was a real education for me because it's oh, wow. um, it was that was for whitetail. Okay, I spent all week out there, and we had whitetail buck tags. The last day I saw whitetail doe, but I also but we ran into bear, beaver, and I ran in. I had a lynx in front of me for a good half an hour, so I'm not going to see a lynx in the UK, and I'm unlikely to see one in Europe. So that was pretty epic for me. That's amazing. So, and we did a lot of fine. We had a, a very good guy there who runs a really nice vineyard um, on your side of the pond, and he bought a lot of very good wine and some very good food. So there was a lot. We didn't starve, and we probably didn't get up as early as we should as well. But uh, it was it was great. I mean, there were loads of people out shooting, and it was just a it, it, very different journey for me from where I normally go hunting. But again, yeah. a new adventure, a different experience. Absolutely. Pretty cold. I mean, wet, shitty weather. It is you know, wet cold up there. The snow's heavy. It's a wet snow. Yeah. Not and very much like Scotland, where at least if you're in Colorado, it's sort of a drier. That's right. Yeah. Or Montana or Idaho, it's much drier and cold. I, I prefer that. Yeah. But uh, we had a good crack. And again, great people. It's just, it's just we can. You and I are talking about all these wonderful adventures, and it, that's the good thing, isn't it? There's so many people. It's so. I'd like, I'd like more people to experience it. I, some of the most fun things are me getting like anti-hunters out and saying, "Come and have a day with me. Come and have a day." And I'd like to do more of that if I got the opportunities and I had the time available. But I've done it a few times in my life, and they've come away with a very different viewpoint. You know. Because I always say, well, have a day with me. I mean, so we could get it wrong. You know, it happens. If you shoot as many animals as we're doing here, there is going to be a percentage where, guess what, we don't get it right. And you have to live with that. And that's a pretty horrible feeling. Sure. But then go and spend a day on a chicken farm. Right. And then tell me what you think is cruel. I mean, had an interesting conversation with an English girl in the States, actually, last visit. And she said, oh, well, you, that's cruel, hunting. And I said, well, you eat meat, though. And she said, yeah, but that's farmed animals. And I said, so, uh, seriously? We go, uh, you know, and I, that, I thought, well, I'm not even going to carry on on that engagement. I just thought, yeah. this, is, this is crazy. Yeah. I'm well, lucky enough, with 7 billion people on the planet, yeah. I say I'm lucky enough to choose the kind of meat that I'm going to stick in my gob, right? Absolutely. A lot of people aren't lucky enough and they have to eat all this crap, Right. Of course, we need intensive farms. You know, with that many people on the planet, there wouldn't be enough protein otherwise. But no. for me and my family, we're lucky enough to be very selective with what we eat. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so there we have it on that one. Well, I agree with you there. It's um, if somebody could go out and spend a day with you, right? And that, that applies to a lot of things in life. Like if you could go out and spend a day with somebody, you would, and in this case, we know what the result would be because we know yeah. what that, that, that farm looks like, right? And yeah. So, um, I put it, I turn it 180. You know, there's a lot of things I don't understand probably as well as I should, but it's great to have this engagement and be able to have these honest discussions without getting upset with one another. I, I really like that. Absolutely. That's where the growth happens. Yeah. But I feel that in recent years, there's a lot of, certainly, I call, I'm not political, so I won't go there, but I'm saying there's nobody more conservative than a liberal that disagrees. 
you know, it's all right to be liberal as long as you agree with people. But right. I really like that engagement where you can say, no, no, we can be friends, we can disagree with things, or, you know, we don't need to get upset with each other. But I see a lot of that now where people get quite vicious about things when they don't understand it or they believe they understand it, right? but they don't actually know all the facts. Absolutely. Well, Rob, we're almost out of time here. So I just want to spend the last couple of minutes, you know, one, thank you for, for taking the time. It's obviously, it's uh, about time for beers over there in the UK. Uh, thank almost. you. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> but a uh, warm beer, a warm beer though. A yes, warm beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But your product um, is amazing. I've enjoyed using it. We'll, we'll be using it. Um, this year, we've got some exciting stuff planned and uh, look forward. I'd love to come over at some point, uh, bring the team and, and, and go hunting and see how you guys do it or what you what it looks like, I will say, in the UK to go out with you for, for roe deer. Um, it, we could definitely arrange that. It's a very easy thing to do. And the, the honest thing, if you fly into any of the London airports, you normally can be out there in the woods within a couple of hours. One. And actually hunting, so it's a very easy thing to fix up. And that's yeah, it's a completely different flavour from from that of the stateside for sure. So we we must do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, thanks for joining us today, and uh, we'll talk soon. I enjoyed it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir.